Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 4 in our text this morning will be verses 1 through 5. Hebrews 4, 1 through 5. And as we arrive at the fourth chapter of this letter here, we continue to see the argument and the warning uh, by Israel's example that began in chapter 3. And this warning... Uh, and the argument that's taking place is through an exposition of Psalm 95. And so the author of Hebrews is looking at Psalm 95 as an example for us to consider why it is Israel failed to enter into God's rest. When we get to chapter 4, there's three directives in the text uh, that I want to just point out to you so you can see the overarching outline of chapter 4. And all of these directives come with the two words, let us. In verse 1, it says, let us fear. In verse 11, let us therefore strive. And then you go on and you see in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near. And so you see these directives of fear, of strive, and approach that really set the directives for the entire chapter of what we are supposed to do. And as you work your way through Hebrews, you will find those directives continually coming up of let us do this. And it's a response to God's gracious actions towards us. So as a result of what God has done for us, let us do this because of what God has done for us. And this morning, we want to primarily look at the word fear. We're called to fear, actually. And I want to see how the idea of fear actually applies to the Christian life and is applied to the Christian life so that we may enter God's rest. It says, let us fear, which seems like an odd thing for God to tell the Christian to do. Considering, especially since we are told in Scripture, that we can know we are saved, we can have an assurance of faith, that we're no longer to fear certain things. We are promised so much from God, and so it strikes us as odd that we would be told here that we're actually to have fear as part of the Christian life, and that fear is part of that Christian life so that we may enter God's rest. And the point becomes this, fear lest you fail to enter his rest. They failed to enter his rest, so be careful that you don't fail either. That's the statement. They failed because they did not believe. They did not have faith. They had unbelief. They heard the message, but they did not respond in faith. So let us fear that we do not likewise fail to enter his rest through unbelief. Now, rest is a major theme of Hebrews and has been mentioned several times now since we got to chapter 3. What is rest? What is rest? Rest sounds phenomenal, doesn't it? What is rest? And why does the author spend so much time 
concerning this rest. And what does it matter to us? Yeah, rest just simply is this. It's a cessation of work. But rest can be a cessation of worry. Rest can be an end to anxiety and stress. Rest can be an end to troubles and uh, the things that we deal with in this life is such a suffering. It's more than just a cessation of work. It's a cessation of all of our troubles. But specifically, when we're told about God's rest, what is being referenced and why should we care? Wouldn't it be nice today to enter into rest? Aren't all of our lives moving at a million miles an hour? What if we could have that rest today? I want you just to consider for a second a brief survey, and I mean brief survey, of God's rest. Back in Genesis chapter 2, it said, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God himself rests on the seventh day and then blesses it. Now we know that God did not cease from holding the universe together. Jesus says, I work now as my father works, but he ceased from his creative work. And the idea of rest became a sign between God and his people. In Exodus 31, 17, it says, it is a sign that is rest between me and the people of Israel that in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. To Joshua, God said, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. The theme of rest wasn't just given during the day of creation and during the time of Moses. Actually, it continued to be a theme of Israel. And when we read Psalm 95, there's a warning about entering that rest, even though they had entered the land already. Psalm 95.11 says, Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You think of that theme of rest throughout the Old Testament, how it's over and over again throughout the Old Testament, and then hear the words of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. That puts a little bit more meaning behind the words of Jesus when he says rest, doesn't it? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, when Jesus' original audience heard that, that word rest, it meant something to them. For in six days God created the heavens and the earth, on the seventh day, he entered into his rest and blessed the day. When Jesus says, enter into my rest, he's speaking of something much more than just simply a cessation of work. He's calling us to enter into that seventh day of rest that is God's own rest. 
Now, when you think of rest, let us hear the word of God from Hebrews 4, 1 through 5. And this is God's word for us today. We begin in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. The first thing I want us to notice from the text is fear is a means of the Christian life for reaching the rest of God. Notice the words, therefore, that starts us off, that connects us to verse 19 of chapter 3. What does it say? See, so see, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. We're given the reason why they could not enter into God's rest because they were not of faith. They did not have faith. They did not trust upon the word of God. So therefore, while the promise of entering his rest stands, let us fear. Notice that text that says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. It's kind of like how we started chapter 3, verse 7, today, if you hear his voice. So this message is for us today, as long as the promise remains, there is opportunity to enter into God's rest. While that promise of entering his rest still stands. That means that the promise right now is open to us. In case we worry it's too late for us, we have the promise that it's still open to us. And we have to see our connection to the wilderness generation here for a moment. The reference is the wilderness generation that was led into the wilderness by Moses in their exodus from Egypt. And that generation is a picture for us. It was a historical event. Historical people lived historical lives just like you and I. But yet they were an example for us. They were a picture for us. For them, there was an inheritance of land. And that inheritance of land has already taken place. So there is a, actually a greater promise to be realized. And right now, we are in the wilderness, moving towards the rest promised in God still today. That's the correlation between us and the wilderness generation. We are moving towards that rest today, just as they were moving to that rest into a land. And so that promise to enter into that 
stands for us. We, like the children of Israel, are moving through this time. We are moving through this life. We are moving through this world. But we must trust in Jesus and persevere through the trials and temptations that we face so that we may enter God's rest. You can do that today if you hear his voice while the promise remains open to you. So the promise still stands. It's not too late. It's not too late to enter into the rest. And we're given a means for arrival. It's this. Let us fear. Let us fear. What is this fear? Well, it's a a fear of, of apostatizing. What is apostatizing? It's to move away from the gospel and to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And apostasy is to result in missing the rest that is promised. Now, does this seem odd to you in light of what we know as Christians to hear the words, let us fear? Look at what God's saying to us right now. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That's what the text tells us, is that fear is what we're supposed to have. That might seem odd, especially from what we saw in chapter 2, verse 15, that because of what Christ did, it says this, He delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, meaning that if you're in Christ, you no longer have a fear of death. You no longer have that fear. You're no longer controlled by that fear. That's what the text tells us, that if you're in Christ, you don't have that fear any longer. We're even told in chapter 13, verse 6, we don't have to fear man. It says this, so we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. The mark of the Christian life is that we are no longer in fear, not a fear of death, not a fear of people. In fact, we're even told in 1 John that perfect love casts out all what? Fear. So then why are we told here that actually part of the Christian life is fear? Are these two things at odds with one another? Did God get confused when he says, I've cast away all fear by my love? And then he says that we're to have fear. Fear is actually part of the Christian life. What does Paul tell the church of Philippi? Work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. And if we try to soften the word fear as just merely being reverential fear, then why does he add the word trembling to it? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 say? The, be, the, the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of God. What is a mark of the unregenerate heart? Is it not a lack of fear? Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So a, a lack of fear is actually a, a mark of the unregenerate, the one that rejects God. 
So on one hand, we're told we don't have a fear of death, we don't have a fear of man, we're no longer controlled by fear, but that God's love casts out fear. But then we also see that fear is part of the Christian life. The Reformed theologian Francis Turretin, he asked this question, and I'm paraphrasing, can the believer be certain of his faith and justification with absolute certainty. And he says, yeah, you can. You can be sure of your salvation. You can be sure that if you have trusted in Christ, that you have eternal life and you can rest in Him. He says that is an absolute truth. But then he goes on to say this, quote, still, this security, that security that we have in Christ he's talking about, that this security neither induces carnal confidence nor excludes filial fear. In other words, he says, yeah, you can have confidence that you rest in Christ. But that doesn't mean there's not fear in the Christian life. But notice how he states it. Filial fear. It might be an odd term. We don't use that very often. But what is filial fear? It's the fear of a child with his parents. That's what filial fear is. It's not like the fear that a subject may have to a ruthless dictator. It's a filial fear. Like a child has a fear of a disciplining father. It's the fear of a child with their parents. In fact, in a prophecy of Christ in Isaiah chapter 11, we even see that This is relevant to our Christian life. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. It's a delight to fear in the Lord, in other words. So on the one hand, we have no fear of death. We have no fear of man. We can have assurance of faith that if we stand in Christ, we are forgiven. There is no longer any condemnation for those that are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are absolutely true and comforting things, but we would be wrong to think there is no fear as part as a means of keeping us on that right track. There should be a fear of apostasy. This fear then throws us, and here's the key to it, this fear that we are told to have here throws us continually to the mercy of Christ. That's what this fear does. This fear is not a a fear of abandonment of God. If God loves you, He has chosen to love you, and there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. It's a fear that throws us to the mercy of God. It's a fear that throws us continually at the feet and the throne of grace of God. A.W. Pink says, of this fear, the Christian needs to be constantly on his guard, having his heart steadily against apostasy, that is, turning away from Christ. You know why we need to continually have our heart towards Christ, that I won't apostatize? Because if God were to, just for one second, remove his hand of grace from me, guess what I would do? I would turn from his mercy. I would turn from his grace. He keeps us. 
We don't keep Him. And so when we recognize that, that continually draws us back to His throne of grace. So our fear is a fear of trusting in our own means. Trusting in our own work. In fact, that was the danger for this congregation. That they were looking at trusting in their own hands. They were looking at trusting in their own ability to uh, garner the rest of God. They had lost a fear of God. It's a fear of our love for sin. We, We love sin, don't we? For the moment. It's a fear of unbelief in God's word. It's a fear of not trusting in God's goodness. It's a fear of rejecting God's grace in our lives. Now, why did they not reach that rest? Why did they not reach that rest? Look what it says. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They thought they could just hear God's promises and say, yeah, those are great. Look what God has done for us. Because God has done those things for us, he probably owes us something. So I can just relax and let go and do things my own way. They did not have faith. They had no fear of God before their eyes. They heard the message, but they did not listen. So he says that this promise remains open to us, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That means to come up short. And as you're thinking of this, I I thought of the parable of ten virgins in Matthew 25. And you're probably familiar with it. Jesus tells the story. There were five foolish virgins that, and there were five that were wise. And they're waiting for the bridegroom to come. Some of them went and got oil for their lamps so that they could see. The other five did not. And when they hear that the bridegroom's coming, they go out to do what? They go out to try to get the oil for their lamps, and they find that when the bridegroom shows up, they're locked out. Listen to the words of the bridegroom. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord! You you know what it means when you see the repetition of, of a name. It means a relationship that's assumed. Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. They came up short. They missed it. The promise remained open to them, and while the promise remained open to them, they'd rather just go to sleep and neglect 
the life that God had called them to. And so Jesus ends with this warning, Watch therefore, for you neither know neither the day nor the hour. So they came up short. The promise remained open for them, but while the promise remained open for them, while it was still today, they rejected the goodness of God. And so what we see is that they heard the message, but they were not united by faith with those who listened. So here it is. Hearing without faith is useless. It's got to transcend from hearing, even from an an intellectual understanding of what's being said, and it has to go into the heart. It has to be united in faith. You see, just hearing the message does not save a person. If just hearing the message would save someone, you think of all the probably millions of people that sat through Billy Graham crusades. Just hearing the message didn't save them. It's responding in faith. And here specifically, I want you to notice that the author here says, good news came to those that were in the wilderness just as it came to us. This is the gospel came to them. Both the Israelites heard the gospel and the church here that he's writing to had heard the gospel. But the hearing has to be accompanied with believing. In other words, we could hear the greatest messages that could be given. But it doesn't do anything for us unless it's accompanied with faith. We could sit under the teaching of Charles Spurgeon every Sunday and not be saved if it's not accompanied by faith. Just just listening to the message, while that may be good for right now, it doesn't bring us to entering into God's rest. Specifically, hearing the message must be united by faith. They did not believe. So how do we enter in this rest? It says in verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now this is kind of a confusing passage here. But what it's saying is that those who did not believe, God swore that those who did not have faith, they would not enter His rest, which means for those that do believe, He swears that they will. For those that did not believe, He, makes it, he takes an oath, they will not enter My rest, but those that do believe, they will enter into My rest. And this again, helps us to understand the nature of Christian fear. It is united by faith. Now, I want us to see something about this text here that's so important for right here and right now, because when we think of that rest, we think of future rest. But if you notice what the text says... In verse 3, it actually says we have entered into that rest now. For we who have believed enter that rest. That speaks of something right now. 
It is a future promise to be realized. But the text actually tells us to enter that rest is a present reality for the Christian. It teaches that, yes, there is a future rest, but for those that are in faith, actually have entered into that rest right now. You think about Jesus' words where he says, whoever believes in me has eternal life, has is present reality. So you believe in Christ, you have eternal life right now, though you have not passed from this life. That's why Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, because he is the resurrection and life. And the same thing is stated here, is that yes, there is a a future rest that we will receive, but this here is speaking of something also that is a present reality for the Christian. We say in theological circles all the time that it is already but not yet. It's already but not yet. It's something you already have, already given to you, but it's not yet fully realized. You, You haven't passed out of this world. Now, by contrast, to understand this rest that we have now, you you think about Israel and what their rest was. It was to be given a land flowing with milk and honey. And the idea is an abundance. It's much like that if they had been obedient, it would have been almost the equivalent of being in Eden. In Eden, they they were given everything. God says, here's all this stuff for you. Well, he says the same thing when they enter into the land. If you're obedient to my word, you have all of these things. Your enemies will run from you. You'll have bountiful harvest. You'll have rain when, when it's needed. The fruit of the womb will be fruitful. All of these promises were given to them that they would have their enemies running from them. That was the promises God gave them for entering into the rest of Canaan. Now you look at these Hebrew Christians that are facing persecution. They're facing difficult times. Things are getting hard in the Christian life. And what are they doing? They're looking back to Mount Sinai, Mount Legality, and they're saying, if we're obedient to the Old Covenant, maybe God will give us these promises He gave our our, our forefathers. This whole Jesus business isn't working out because with Jesus, there's coming suffering. With Jesus, we're dealing with persecution. With Jesus, we're dealing with strife from our neighbors. But in the Old Covenant, if we were obedient, our enemies would run from us. Maybe we should go back to that. That's the temptation. What does that rest look like for us now? Jesus says, in this world you'll have tribulation, but I have, what? Overcome this world. And he promises us something that's, that's not, not even, we, we can't even put our, our, our hand on it. But if you're in Christ, you know what I'm, I'm going to say. You have peace. You, you, you have that peace that surpasses all 
understanding. In Philippians, Paul, Philippians is such a remarkable letter because Paul is facing possible execution, and yet the letter is about joy. It's an amazing letter because not only is he facing possible execution at the hands of Caesar, but he has other Christians that are trying to cause him harm. And in that, he says, I'm going to rejoice. And he says this, he says in chapter 4, verse 4 of Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here it is. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ and you have entered into that rest, you have peace even when Caesar wants to chop your head off. You have joy when other Christians are trying to harm you because they're jealous of you while you're in prison. That's what Paul teaches us. Paul had entered into that rest. But not only that, he writes a letter in dire circumstances and says, we're to have thanksgiving. We're to have a heart full of thankfulness. That is a peace that surpasses all understanding. That is a peace that that the world cannot understand. But if you're in Christ, you know exactly what Paul's talking about, don't you? That through the most dire circumstances of your life, you have experienced a peace that surpasses understanding. And if you're not a Christian and you go, boy, that sounds wonderful. Look at the promise remains open to you today. So what are we promised as we enter now? Right now is promised joy, promised peace, a thankful life. We're promised access to God's throne of grace, that it's open to you as you wander through the wilderness of this life. God's throne room of grace is open to you. That is already for the Christian. We have life now, and Jesus says life in him now is even more abundant, right? Because if you're in Christ, you've entered into that rest. And we can cease from our works to enter into life. Consider what the author later says this, but you have come to Mount Zion. What is he saying? You've actually come to that. You have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You've arrived at the heavenly Zion. It says you already are there. So if you're in Christ, you've already received that rest. But there's a greater rest awaiting us. There's the full consummation of it. What we experience now, in part, will be experienced in its fullness, and we can't even imagine it. 
You see, the joy and the peace that we have now is just a foretaste of what's to come. Read Revelation 21 and 22, and you will see a glimpse of it. Or you think about Paul's words describing heaven where he says, there aren't even words that can describe it. And just think back to Israel. Israel had the promise of defeating their enemies And they had the promise of a bountiful harvest. But they still had to harvest and they still have enemies. If you're in Christ right now, we're told that the enemy is already defeated and Christ is ruling right now. We're told that Christ has already defeated Satan. He has already conquered death. He has risen and reigns everlastingly. And all that we experience now is because the king in his providence is working things out in some way that is beyond our understanding. But in heaven, when we enter into the full consummation of it, there's an eternal rest of God, and our harvest is the tree of life. How beautiful is that? that we can enter into the eternal rest of God where there are no enemies because we've entered in the rest of God and it is His rest. Notice what verse 4 says. For He is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. And that's Genesis 2.2. 2. We are invited to enter into that rest, that day of blessedness. And it's God's very own rest. There's a tremendous picture here. The rest that the Israelites were to receive in Canaan is really the picture of the Old Covenant. It was conditional. It was based upon works. Whereas the rest of God is the reality of which the old pointed towards. But in the rest of God, it is an accomplished reality because it is God's rest from creation. And we are invited to rest in Him. And so the rest here that is promised is something we must see as accomplished. And what do I mean by that? If there was something that I had to do in order to enter that rest, you would have to say, how is that rest? God's rest is an accomplished rest. But you might say, well, hold on. What about all of the warnings about rebellion and obedience and... Uh, fear and all of these things. And we're, we're warned about obedience and rebellion and sin. We're warned about those things and we're called to be holy. Isn't that contradictory? Not at all. Not at all. Christ has accomplished the law for us. Christ has accomplished the work for us. And when we rest in Him, what becomes our desire? Our desire and what motivates us is His love, His mercy, His grace. When I think about what Christ has done for me, the desire is 
to respond in love towards Him. To think of His love for us motivates us to return love. So knowing Christ leads us to a reverential understanding of God's greatness, God's hatred of sin, God's holiness, and our rest in Him is a life of living for Him. In other words, when we have known the grace of Christ and have believed in Him, it motivates us. So you want to be motivated to, li- motivated to live an obedient life to Christ? Here's the secret. Look to Christ. You just look to Christ. There's no one more lovely than Him. There's no one more wonderful than Christ. He is the greatest. Anything else falls short. And second is this, is we're not being told here that we must do something in terms of work. Salvation is by faith alone. They did not enter God's rest because they did not believe. And faith is the gracious work of God. So let us not confuse the call of work, uh, fear with work. And I want, I want us to set us at ease for, for a second here. Do I have to stop sinning to enter that rest? Notice what Scripture tells us. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. If we had to think about, okay, I need to clean myself up before I come to Christ and rest in Him. We've got it all wrong because Christ doesn't justify the godly. He justifies the ungodly. And when He justifies us and unites Himself with us, guess what happens? We not only have His righteousness but His righteousness works in us. That our desire is to live for Him. That is our rest in Him. We do not clean ourselves up first and then come to Christ. He Himself cleanses us. He died not for the godly, but He died for the godly. He changes us. He works in us so that we may live a life of reverential fear of God. And we may enter that rest right now. You see, today, if you hear his voice, you need to come to the Lord Jesus who says, come unto me to enter into my rest. And that promise still remains. That promise still remains until you draw your last breath. But once you've drawn your last breath, promise is over. There's no turning back. So let us respond in faith to the message. Let us enter into that rest now with a foretaste of the eternal rest we will receive in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that in Christ we 
are set free and we may receive that eternal rest even now. Father, I pray that we would live lives that are marked by a a fear of our love for sin, a fear of turning, a, a, a fear of not trusting in your grace. Maybe this be a means to us always throwing our, ourselves to the feet of Christ. I pray that, Father, as we consider these words that you have given us, we would reflect upon them, not just today, but uh, the remainder of our journey through this wilderness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.